Welcome to the Arts Union Science Journal. Please enter your password. So this is only the second time I've done this. It's like, so there's no real right way or <laughs> um, I'm sure, I'm sure there is a right way, but if there is, I don't know it. <laughs> that's, that's why this is science though. We have to first do it wrong many, many different ways. Right. And then we'll publish all of the ways that you know are wrong before finding that 20 years ago, someone figured it out and it was just in a low impact journal we never bothered to read. Yep, just gonna look into the PubMed entry on it and it'll say something like, dear reviewers of the Arts Union Science Podcast, thank you so much for coming to our second episode, episode two, as we're calling it. Um, but the full title of this here behemoth of an episode, uh, well, that's predictive anyway, is The Irishman as a Depiction of Glorified Violence Within Organized Crime, Pulling a Rope of Sand. Your corresponding author, titled Tyler D.R. Vance, and we have here with us this week another first author. Hello. That's you. That's me? Wonderful. Uh, my name is yeah. Keegan Turner-Wood. I met Tyler in university, and we've remained past friends ever since. He worked just down the hall from me, and some of my fondest memories are going over to, to pester him during the workday. And many of our topics of conversation were related to movies, so I think that this should follow suit. Oh, yeah, I would think so. Considering that, it was a lot of also activating trap yes. cards. Yes. And, again, leaving nonsensical pieces of paper all over each other's we, desks, sometimes in retro and ill-fitted retribution. We, we left a lot of comrades in the shadow realm and it's for that reason that we go on today. Yep. So Keegan, some would consider yourself a wise guy of science um, because if, I, if I'm correct, you have a bachelor of science from Queens university in biochemistry. Um, you also have a, is it, were, so did a stint as, uh, was it quality control at a prestigious alcohol making that establishment? Is, that is fact. I was a laboratory technologist for Bacardi Canada. And now you are undertaking to get your PhD, your doctorate of philosophy at Queen's University, which is where the aforementioned trap cards were mostly also activated. Also true. Um, I am a PhD candidate in my fifth year at Queen's University. Good times. Wheat, and so from all of that, it can say that you are indeed well versed in science. Uh, yes, but I've been known the, to science. You've been known Sometimes. to science. You've been, you've been known to Sometimes. When I'm not talking about movies, um, I, uh, but, I have to do science. <laughs> when when the when the midnight oil is like stops burning for science, we start up the next candle and we like move on to movies. 
And with that in mind, I would like to ask, what are your affiliations towards movies? If those were your affiliations towards science, what place has movies had in your life? So I grew up next to Jolly's Dairy Bar and Video. So I watched a lot of movies with my family, just all over the place, um, pretty easy to find. And then also throughout, throughout the rest of my life, I've just always had them as my preferred art style. Um, it's just, in my, by my view, the best way to uptake new and novel information of a wide variety of sources is through movies. You get the pretty pictures, keeps you engaged, keeps you exciting, you want to look at it. And then sometimes, sometimes infrequently, as is the case in this movie, people talk and you can learn stuff from that. So that's, that's my enjoyment from it. You, uh, all, all, all brands of movies, I suppose. Uh, I've been known to dabble in documentary, always a favorite of mine, but also any sort of uh, crime thriller as this is, as well as dramas and whatnot. Like that works well because I do recall a certain documentary watching experience where I was sitting in a theater watching a documentary, oh, yes. pretty pleased, and then on the right to see you completely enraptured, so engaged with what was on the screen, and then I looked to my left to see our other friend, who shall remain nameless, asleep. Now, <laughs> and it was like, well, this is the whole spectrum, isn't it, when it comes to documentary filmmaking? If, if I remember, that was. Um, Anthropocene, the human epoch, which was... It wasn't... Now, th this perhaps where I deviate most from most moviegoers is uh, I don't need a lot to be happening in the movies for me to enjoy them. I love atmospherics. I love the telling of story uh, without having to tell it. I think it's a trope to say show don't tell anymore, but really that was a movie that did a lot of showing and no telling whatsoever. So I found that enrapturing. Uh, our colleague, though, has fallen asleep for a variety of movies. So I'm not going to say it's Anthropocene's fault, but I had a feeling he wasn't going to make it through five minutes in. It was a good hypothesis. Yeah, it proved accurate. It did. It did. I didn't notice. I didn't notice he fell asleep either. I, uh, I was too busy watching <laughs> uh, wide-angle shots of strip mining. What honestly could be more exciting than that? I'm not sure. Well, we might have a contender in today's movie, uh, The Irishman, which is a 2019 crime drama from everyone's favorite gangster director, Martin Scorsese. Yes. Um, like we're, it's like, it's going to be an interesting time. That movie is three and a half hours long. We're hoping that the podcast will be shy of that as we move on. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about why you decided to choose The Irishman to send forth to the Arts Union Science Journal? What was it about this movie that intrigued you and made you think, yeah, I could talk for hours at length about this movie? <laughs> well, firstly, this podcast was an excellent excuse to watch this movie. It had been something I'd been looking at on Netflix for a while and really pining for, which I'll get into why in a moment. But it's kind of hard to block out three and a half hours in your day without an express purpose. So when you asked me if I wanted to do a movie for this podcast, I thought, perfect excuse. Perfect excuse to just write out a night and say, no, 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 I'm not doing this just for me. This is for, this is for research purposes. I'm not this just is for science. For yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and in, in doing so, I use this podcast to justify my watching of it. But why I watch this movie is frankly just because I love the crime genre. It is just 
has something for everyone. It's fantastic. I think I've seen all of Martin Scorsese's crime movies, of which he's made numerous ones, as well as a lot of those old-style movies. You get really a bit of everything there. If you want to make a movie that's purely entertainment, the genre has a ton of depth for that between the old costume designs, the old set designs. You get to see people going around in old-style suits and fedoras shooting each other from Model T cars with Tommy guns, which is just so exciting, as well as it allows you to examine social hierarchies and the human psyche in a way which conventional movies might not be able to do because the idea of organized crime and criminality is a foil to regular society. You'll still see people address each other with what you perceive as the same degrees of respect. You have a hierarchy of someone being the boss over someone else. You know, if they tell you something they have to do, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things which I think people can relate there, but what gives them respect, what makes them a respectable member of that are things which would be morally abhorrent in any other context. You have a group of people who with a perfect smile on their face are willing to do very, very bad things. But as an audience, you still find yourself cheering for them. All of these movies have main characters who are were fundamentally very bad people. And yet you still seemingly want them to succeed. I find myself in this movie rooting for Robert De Niro as he's beating up a shopkeeper, which if you can imagine in your everyday life, probably, probably not the side that you would normally take in that. And it's interesting how a director can present this type of behavior as something that is sympathetic by playing on the audience's understanding of why people do things. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so with that, we are going to get into the introduction. So the introduction of a scientific paper is the portion where you place your incoming data into context, where you basically look at the um, brief history of the field as it stands, both from an objective and then a subjective perspective, and then bring it into the big questions that you're gonna be talking about as you move forward. In this case, our data is a film, specifically The Irishman where there's going to be spoilers throughout the entirety of this. So please um, don't write angry messages to us. Um, if we were to spoil it's like the Irishman, the movie that's been out for a year it is three and a half hours long. It would be a um, narrow crowd indeed who would be willing to listen to a podcast of this length on a movie like the Irishman and yet not have yet seen the Irishman, but still want to. So I think we're pretty much in the clear. The union of those uh, of those Venn diagram bubbles, I imagine, is quite narrow. I would think so. So it's like, yeah, imagine if someone went out of their way to find this podcast in the annals of Anchor or Spotify or whatnot, having not watched The Irishman, and then sought us out to complain yeah. about it. That would be quite an interesting person. I would, I would like be. to meet that person. <laughs> Just to prove that uh, we are indeed a spoilerific podcast, we are going to give a brief plot synopsis that will indeed... Uh, spoil the entire movie. So, are you ready? I'm ready. Frank Sheeran is an old man on death's door. He sits in a Catholic retirement home among the other elderly and the men of God, reminiscing about his eventful life in the Philadelphia mob. He has no visitors, as all of his colleagues have either shuffled off his mortal coil in one way or another, and his family seems to want very little to do with him. When pushed for some feeling of remorse over his years of violence, he is unable to truly embrace regret. 
learning to pray only when his time with God seems nigh. However, Frank Sheeran is also a late middle-aged man on a road trip. He sits beside his friend of many years, Russell Buffalino, a bigwig in the Philadelphia mob, and the two gangsters and their chain-smoking wives are on their way to a wedding. Although the wedding is really an excuse to put another of Frank's friends in the ground, namely the famous Jimmy Hoffa. The loud and aggressive Hoffa has mouthed off one too many times, and sadly, it just is what it is. To prove his loyalty, Frank is made to do the deed, shooting his friend in the back of the head and leaving his body to be cremated discreetly, never to be found by the authorities or Hoppe's poor family. However, Frank Sheeran is also a young delivery man looking to provide a life for his family. He sees his opportunity in the underworld, beginning by stealing steaks and delivering them to appreciative mob bosses. From this tentative toe dipped into the gangster lifestyle, Frank quickly submerges more and more of himself and his aggressive talents, becoming a house painter, read Hitman, for the likes of Russell Buffalino and Angelo Bruno. It's through these adventures that Frank is eventually paired with Jimmy Hoffa, the head of the Trucks Union and soon-to-be famously missing person. So, that's Amazing. the plot. Did you, did you write that? I did. Wow. You should write Thank papers. You. Thank you. You, you know what i keep on trying to convince people of that <laughs> oh, so what i had to do is make up my own fictitious journal so that they would accept my writing i'm just saying i i read the the imdb description no it doesn't do it justice i think you covered all your bases there yeah yeah well thank you i thought about just putting the imd what imdb one on there but yeah, i thought to myself you know what tyler no. you're better than no. that you're you are better than that and, and if not you're, better, you're at you're, least you're at least really four minutes better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was fitting. It's a long movie. It needed a long. <laughs> I when you when you took a pause and then the for the next part, I, I knew at that point you may have gotten yourself in too deep. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the objective history of the Irishman. So it took over 20 years since the last collaboration between the gang gangster dream team of De Niro, Pesci, and Scorsese to actually have another go at the big screen. This time, they were accompanied by the newcomer, Al Pacino. Newcomer put in the biggest, most sarcastic, sarcastic air quotes that you can possibly <laughs> find. Um, the process required years of work to make sure everything was fine-tuned from the script to the state-of-the-art de-aging effects. And once finished, The Irishman actually was, like, was only put in theaters for a month before it was released on Netflix worldwide. When it came out, it had 96% fresh on the review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes with an N of 435 reviewers, and a 94% on Metacritic with an N of 55, indicating universal acclaim amongst the critical community. And it was actually nominated for 10 Academy Awards, ultimately winning none of them. But if that's the objective history, what was your subjective history with The Irishman? Like, when did you come to watch this behemoth? When did you hear about it? Like, and what was the process like? So part of my history for watching this movie was after a long line of loving Scorsese relationships, I would say. I had seen probably the longest ago Gangs of New York, which maybe not the best example of his work, but... I just love Daniel Day-Lewis so much, so that's fine. But it does fall under the organized crime Scorsese genre, of which he has several. Um, so the context for watching this movie would be having uh, Taxi Driver, Gangs of New York, Mean Streets, probably the being the first one, uh, Naturally Goodfellas, as well as Casino, and mm. The Departed, and maybe to a lesser extent, the Wolf of Wall Street as an organized crime Scorsese movie, 
admittedly crime of a different nature, but that movie felt a lot like Goodfellas if the main characters were bankers. So same kind of energy there. And so my context for having seen this is, I would say, much more energetic, um, especially in his most recent movies um, and the more direct comparisons in Goodfellas, Casino, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, The Pardon, and whatnot. Those are all like crime rigmarole stories where it's exciting to watch them do anything. The people there clearly like what they do. They enjoy the crime. They enjoy being part of it. Maybe not so much in The Departed. You know, I can tell uh, Leo maybe has had a better time of things. But to be fair, he is the cop. So, well, tangential spoilers. Um, I think this movie might be of Scorsese's, uh, more closely related to Taxi Driver. Uh, Probably Mm -hmm. helps that uh, De Niro is the main character. So that's already a, a big comparison. But also, he's serious and you know seriously messed up he has an obsession of of some nature and he has certain violent tendencies which he rationalizes with base level morality so in taxi driver he he's kind of like the the confederacy of dunces ignatius character in observing the indecencies of others thinking himself superior to that and as such you know his actions are not morally reprehensible because he's the good guy in this way. And I think there's a good comparison to be drawn there with the Irishman where the actions, the very evil actions, which Robert De Niro's character takes are justified based on protecting people. So specifically, you know, he protects his family. He doesn't want anyone to lay not even a finger, not even a finger on his little girl, as well as provide wealth for his family, as well as he feels a responsibility towards the members of the organized crime family. So the context for having seen this is really to compare it to all of Scorsese's other crime movies, of which there are many. If he if he were a, a one-note director, which I, I don't think that he is, um, his note would be to make quality organized crime films. Um, otherwise, for the my pre-existing knowledge of this movie, very little. Again, didn't watch the trailer for it, just knew who was in it, knew it was going to be about uh, the death of Jimmy Hoffa. But uh, hilariously, I didn't even know who Jimmy Hoffa was. I <laughs> This was a very educational movie for me, which made me feel a little bad, even when during the movie, Robin Nero character says, like, oh, you don't know who Jimmy Hoffa was and is incredulous. And at that point, we respect his character enough to be like, oh, wait, I also don't know who Jimmy Hoffa is. <laughs> so if there's the best thing to come out of this movie was for me then to watch a number of documentaries on Jimmy Hoffa, the Teamsters and organized labor of the time. So I feel like I learned a lot tangentially through the Irishman, but really my knowledge of the subject matter was, was non-existent. I think Tony prose appears maybe in another movie I'd seen before, but I couldn't even name it. So I'm not sure. Yeah. And I think, like crazy Joe, like some of these people actually do. It's like have movies made about them as well, and that's something that was. I like think we can talk about a little bit later. But this idea of um, Martin Scorsese having a gangster cinematic universe, despite his hatred of the like Marvel Cinematic Universe. If there's anyone based on Fat Tony Salerno, it's got to be from The Sopranos, right? 
I mean, yeah, yeah you'd think so, right? <laughs> I've, I've some of these characters I've seen before, even if I haven't, you know, technically seen them before. But because of the public's infatuation with organized crime in movies for a long time, there's a ton of characters that are at the very least based on these people. Yeah, agreed. I say I had seen before this movie. I had seen eleven of Scorsese's movies, um, and not, none of his documentaries, of which he's made many. Is like, um, but I'd only seen most of is like quite a, like a chunk of his like uh, narrative films. Yeah, so back in the March of 2017, it's like I was actually doing a fun little like viewing process, like project, fun for me, um, where I basically <laughs> every month pick four movies from a director I'd never seen anything from and then watch them. And so that was the first time I'd ever seen any Scorsese movie. And I watched Taxi Driver, Hugo, The Departed, and Raging Bull. And it was on that fateful march that my then-girlfriend, now-wife, watched Raging Bull, got so angry with it um, that I've now consistently had to watch every Scorsese movie by myself since that time, Mm. Um, including The Irishman, when I first watched it in the Christmas of 2019, um, Under the Glow of a Christmas Tree. And though I would have loved to see it in theaters, it's like it was it was nice to see it that way and then move forward it's like with my life and didn't really think much about the Irish is the like Irishman again until you decided to it was like watch it and we and I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago. And now here we are. I really signed you up for something then. Um, but I'm <laughs> glad you I'm glad you enjoyed it. That would have been awkward if I came on here and you're like, I hated it, you know, it's going to be blood through the course of this conversation. <laughs> Well, not only did you sign me up for that, but you also signed me up as I hadn't seen either Goodfellas or Casino before this. So I also watched both of those movies, One is like both of which are flirting with the three-hour mark. You're welcome, um, honestly. Yes. <laughs> so nine, it's like nine hours of very solid, very impressive gangster film. And so it's like, I, I don't regret it. Oh, God, you watch it all in one day? No, no, I watched it. It's like, uh, no, no, no. no. Was, uh, Goodfellas and Casino were practically a double double feature. I watched them within a 12-hour period, but then I, I, I let it sit for a couple weeks before I watched The Irishman. See, that, that, if there's any way I think that you could ruin the experience of Casino, it's watching it immediately after Goodfellas. Because and I think I did. <laughs> I think that's I, what happened I, to me. <laughs> I really like Casino. I thought it was fantastic, but it's just—it's so similar to Goodfellas while not being better that it just—you can't help but feel that it just is missing something. And maybe, maybe he did perfect the formula in that. Um, I believe Goodfellas came out after Casino. I'm not too sure. Um, um, no, Goodfellas was Goodfellas was first. It came out oh, in like early rats. '90s, and then Casino came out in '95. Well, The Irishman feels sufficiently different from those two movies that they can they can both be good. When you have two things that are as similar as Casino and Goodfellas, I feel like you have to pick a favorite. But The Irishman and his other works, I think they can both be good. Yeah, well, especially since it seems like The Irishman is like indirect communication with the previous works, like. In, in a lot of ways, which we will get into. I got um, a lot of vibes as per like new era Western movies in watching The Irishman. Specifically, I can see that. Clint Eastwood often talks about how in the later stages of his directing, he wanted to make movies about the results of consequence-free violence. And so the characters were more hard-bitten. Their actions were more meaningful. They weren't shown to be 
as wild gunslingers, but rather just kind of lucky and cold blooded. And so it's, it's that kind of progression, which I also see in the Irishman where again, De Niro isn't loving life quite as much as he was in Goodfellas or Casino. He's just part of it because he has nothing else and he has to be. There's no more guns in the valley. Yeah, there are there are no more guns in the valley. There's a shit ton at the bottom of that river, though. <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> Enough to All arm right. a small nation, I believe. <laughs> so let us move on to the next section, which is the materials and methods. A comprehensive guide to the equipment and methodology used to collect the data. In this case, it's what we use to watch the movie. In theory, you should provide instructions that are detailed enough so that someone can recreate your experiment and come to the same results. So in this case, we will be providing a kind of a guide of how you can reproduce our viewing experiences, um, which it seems like our two experiences were actually quite different this time. I am referring to this time my second time watching the film. This will be referring to Hegan's first time watching the movie. Would you like to go first? Okay, so for context, with a big love of Scorsese movies, I went in, Tabula Rasa, hadn't seen, trailer, didn't know anything about the movie. I pretty much already knew I was going to like it, which I know biases me in a large variety of ways, but, uh, you know, that's life. Um, So I had a nice big dinner. I made sure I had the house to myself because I knew my partner would not enjoy a movie of this length or pace. And also, given his other movies, I felt that it would be best to be enraptured by it. It's definitely a movie that gains a lot from a dark viewing experience. I watch it in the evening, close all the curtains, turn off all the lights. So it was just me sitting in front of my large LG TV. So I had the full depth of vision just as the screen. Didn't see anything else, and I wouldn't change a thing of that. Otherwise, I uh, drank some Nickelbrook Zap beer, delicious summer beer. Don't know how much that changed my experience, but just for context and to make it seem like I'm a little bit classier. Um, if you want to replicate this, I wholeheartedly suggest it because it's definitely an atmospheric movie which gains a lot from being able to stay immersed in it and not have to come out and then come back in and (laughs) take the next 20 minutes to jump back into the life of this mild-mannered Irishman. I had a very different viewing experience this time around. Um, So if you intend to reproduce my experience, the first thing you need to do is to start the movie at 10 a.m. on a blistering summer morn. Uh, after making plans to meet with your friend at 1.30 p.m. because you erroneously believe the movie to be three hours instead of the actual 3.5 hours. Mm. Um, he's like, you need to then ready your nutritional media. So for me, it was a English muffin. Uh, and then I mixed one part white wine with three parts orange juice to make a simple poor man's orange sangria as an alcoholic supplement. Following that, you, I sat myself around two feet from the 42-inch LG TV with food and drink in hand because, as we've discovered through our many, many two episodes of the Arts Union Science <laughs> Podcast, it is very important to have a TV that can really reflect what you need. So, for instance, if you're going to be staring into the depths of a gangster's soul, seeing that black, black tar of a heart, 
through their eyes. You really need a TV that's up to the challenge. I've tried other TVs, and I can honestly say that LG TVs are the way to go. If you're trying to get the <laughs> authentic movie viewing experience, if there's just no substitute. Nope. No, and so on that LG TV, I then logged on to Netflix, strapped in for my what I thought was three, but was actually three and a half hours of crime goodness. And um, then optionally, you can take a bathroom break at minute 66, realize your earlier air, call your friend to push back your meeting 30 minutes. Do not explain it. It's because you are actually watching The Irishman during this time. And then as soon as the movie's done, run out the door and try to catch the TTC to get downtown. That's, yeah. You went, we went in different paths here. Uh, <laughs> we did. But <laughs> may, maybe it's a testament to how robust the movie is that we could watch it in such different viewing experiences and still enjoy it. Yeah, because I still quite enjoy the movie with this time around. I would definitely prefer my first viewing experience, which was, once again, in the evening, because I do think that this movie works better in that way. It's like, um, it's kind of a sensory it's like deprivation sort yeah. of thing. You focus on it. Um, and then without the looming clock over my head, that was also better the first time. You, you did a smart move. Definitely would recommend bringing supplemental media, food and drink for this movie is necessary, else you perish halfway through. Yep. If that is the materials and methods, how you can reproduce this experience for yourself, um, why don't we actually move on to the meat and potatoes of any scientific um, what is this called? A publication, I suppose. Um, <laughs> the results section. <laughs> so here at the Arts Union Science podcast, we have several different homebrewed analyses models for taking down a film and cutting it into its basic components and regurgitating it back for the active audience that's waiting on the other side of this telephone. Um, in this case, we are going with the Baker's Elemental Minimization Model, which you will remember from episode one. This pays uh, as a homage to David Baker, the great in silico protein structure dude of the 21st century. And it is shaped like an inverted triangle where one starts by looking at a larger story element before focusing in on a particular scene and then an exceptionally finite moment of interest. Why don't I must we... say, I first thought that this was named after Tom Baker, the fourth <laughs> oh. Doctor Who character, but uh, it, he'll do. He's, he's no Doctor Who, but fair share of successes um not immortal to my understanding of course no one's tried killing him yet so yeah we'll have to see yeah that we know of <laughs> so the wide angle lens for this i really do think has to look at the values that the irishman is trying to uphold in doing so many things so the first thing we're going to need to do is just walk through the plot a little bit to see how he gets to be where he is. And the movie does a great job of showing you that there's going to be character progression by straight up starting at several different points in time. We see that he's quite different in those. Robert De Niro, being a pretty good actor, does have the ability to show you how all those times change. So the, the most obvious of this is a vocal stutter that De Niro takes on, which you do not see in anything but his most aged picture, but then we see happens basically right after the killing of Jimmy Hoffa. And so you can see that part of his soul there really is, is taken away from him. His, his really one and only and best friend is someone that he has, to, he has to kill, and you see the toll that takes on him. And I do like this 
in the same way that something like Breaking Bad shows us the transition of an, an every man into a hardened criminal. He really is just a, a regular guy with no particularly impressive skill sets who ends up both changing history a great deal with this murder as well as becoming someone important in his own eyes as well as in the eyes of his adopted family in the, the crime family. And so the widest angle of this is just character progression. Just how do you how do you get from point A to point B? And we see that he slips into it glacially slowly. But it takes the whole course of the movie to finally piece all of these parts together with the very last scenes being what bridges these three initial scenes. And we learn that partway through that he has had some experience with violence in the past. He fought in the war and it's seen that he committed war crimes there. He did, uh, he did killings there on order, which he then compares to, he then compares to his work for the crime family. And that shows us that some of these traits are not learned, at least not learned while he's acting as an assassin. And so there is some commentary here, I expect, on what being in the army and being forced to kill people does to you. And given we don't see any of Robert De Niro before his time in Italy, we don't know what he was like before that. We don't know if he had that kind of darkness inside him beforehand. But given we're never shown that character, I really think that we're supposed to take his post-war days really as his early days we're supposed to understand that that is the the start that's the baseline of of where robert nero begins even though he's somewhat damaged goods already i think what that part is trying to say is that he just has some sort of well he, he has an innate violence in him he has he has the ability to commit crime but justify it for a variety of reasons and in the first case it was more morally justified in the army, whereas later it is far less morally justified. But we see how he slips in. And he gets started along this path really by stealing meat, which is so simple, right? That seems like absolutely nothing at all. In fact, he starts doing it without even using his own hands. He just drives by and other people pick it up. But at that point, he doesn't realize that the stakes are so high and so he keeps pushing it. He steals larger volumes of it. He then takes whole truckloads out, which are all missing. And this is then when he's introduced to initially the more serious crime members. So that's when we get to see uh, the, the Buffalinos for really the first time. Um, Ray Romano appears there as his lawyer, who cites, first of all, Jimmy Hoffa with a great deal of reverence. So we see at that time that all of the characters have a certain respect for Jimmy Hoffa, and then he gets him off. So this is the first time that Robert De Niro's character owes something to the mob. And I really do think that's what that, that initial sense of loyalty is what allows him to keep pushing the envelope. Now that he thinks, well, these guys helped me out once, so I've got to do right by them, it's just an inevitable cycle. And although not confirmed through the movie, I do wonder 
how much the Buffalinos had a hand in what was going on there because he's introduced to a guy in a bar who will buy his meats. He's that's not, he doesn't seek him out. It's presented to him. And then Joe Pesci's character also helps him up the side of the road. He tells him that he owns this road. And it makes sense to me then that a criminal who manages all of the, the theft, the, the blackmail, the laundering on a particular stretch would know all of the drivers who came through that area. And so I have a certain expectation that at some point in this movie, although it's unclear when, Robert Nero's character is manipulated into becoming more involved than he might have otherwise been. Um, this is especially notable around the time when he kills his first person. So after he ups his meat-stealing game, he eventually starts playing muscle for the Buffalinos. Um, he collects money for them, and even at one point is shown to, to beat a guy up and show him a gun, threatening violence to get money off of him so that people will, uh, will pay them for some nondescript services rendered. And then when he tries to go out and do his own thing, when he tries to get his own independence through a character named Whispers by burning out a laundromat, it's at that point that the character who initially got him into it, so the character who he's introduced to as someone who will buy his stolen meat, then shows up and says, you have to come with me. And when he does so, he realizes that he's in way over his head. He tried to burn down a mob-associated laundromat. And this is when he is solidified as being in the debt of Joe Pesci. So Joe Pesci says nothing whatsoever during the scene. I don't, I don't think a single word is spoken. However, uh, Angelo Bruno, who is an upper crime member as well, tells him that he's his friend. He doesn't know how good he's had it. He would have just killed him if it wasn't for his friend, uh, Russell Buffalino. And so from that point on, he'll pretty much do whatever. And then they get him to kill Whispers. He gets to keep the money, which I find interesting because that's the first time he's being paid to kill someone. I mean, technically Whispers paid him to kill him, but even mm -hmm. still, he keeps that money. And then there's a very, very fast cut of him killing a lot of people and throwing away a lot of guns. It implies he, he murders dozens of people. And this is really him at peak depravity. He's killing people. He's getting money. He talks about why he does it. And it's important to note that this entire process is narrated by... Uh, Frank. It's it's narrated the entire time as him explaining what happened, and he speaks very matter-of-factly throughout the whole thing. He is a man of very simple values, of simple ambitions, and a big part of what he seems to crave is to have his skills valued once again, and to get the respect of other people for doing a good job. He says that this was no different from the army. You would go, you would kill some people. If you got a good, if you did a good job, you'd get rewarded. And so it's very familiar to me. And I think it's interesting that he's someone who's so comfortable with that kind of violence. That's what makes me think that this movie is trying to highlight some innate or natural violent tendencies within this character because he's, he's at ease. He really only thinks twice about killing someone 
when that person is his best friend. When he decides to kill Whispers, he doesn't discuss it at all. They basically tell him, we were going to kill you, now you've got to take care of something, and he just does it. So they've got him. They've got him at that point. Anyways, this bridges into him becoming older and getting involved with Jimmy Hoffa as his, not really bodyguard, but he does act as that, but really as his mob affiliate enforcer. So whenever Jimmy Hoffa wants to get something done, he does it. Now, I think it's implied that murder is involved in this case, um, although the work tends to be a little less grim than when he was directly working for the mob. I mean, driving a bunch of cars or setting them on fire isn't exactly the same as shooting a man in a coffee shop in front of his whole family. So there's degrees of evil in this. <laughs> and yeah. And I, I think it's important to note that the type of work he does with Jimmy Hoffa, he seems to get more out of it in some way. The work that he does with Russell Buffalino, it's a job. He just says it himself. He just, it got, it's got to get done. It is what it is. He kills people. He doesn't seem to appreciate it. The work that he does with Jimmy Hoffa gives him a good sense of satisfaction. He has been a union man his whole life, he says. And so many of the things that Jimmy Hoffa is saying are things that he would agree with as well. There are certain values about uh, the rights of the working man, which as working man himself would resonate with him. You can see that he says he's been part of the union for a long time. And the way that he treats Jimmy Hoffa is with a different sort of respect to Russell Buffalino. In many ways, they seem to both act as a sort of father figure, but uh, <laughs> one of them is the dad that you respect for his quiet competence, ability to get stuff done, and you'll always do what he says, but there's like a certain fear behind that respect. Frank just likes Jimmy. He gets along well as his family. He doesn't seem to judge the things that he does. And he is way over the top with his character and with his praise. He, he says when he's yelling at people about going to jail, it's like, no, I'd never say that with you. We're friends. We go way back. He's able to calm him. And really, Jimmy Hoffa the, seems to be the only person who can really reach the human that's left inside of Frank, making then his slaying ultimately so much sadder, but even still. Um, I've glossed over a ton of stuff in there. They talk about the relationship with his his daughter, which I think I'll have to circle back to at the end because that one's kind of an oddball. It really stands out as different from the rest of the film. Uh, they do talk about him getting a divorce and getting a new wife who is introduced to him by Russell Buffalino. So you can see how the crime is changing every aspect of his life. It alienates his daughter because she doesn't like Russell, and so she doesn't talk to him. Um, it alienates his wife because he divorces her for, a, I believe, a waitress who is introduced to them at one of Russell's club. It alienates him from everybody else he works with and the people he lives with because they know he's involved in crime, and so he's kind of uh, a man apart. Anywho, after this alienation is fully complete, he tries to save his best friend. So he tries to save the one man who still sees good in him and he he likes him so much that he wants to do anything for him. And then the other influence in his life tells him, 
It's not a choice. And it's an interesting decision for Frank's character to make, but in a way that he's already alluded to, it's no decision at all. He abandons his friend, he abandons his morals, and he shoots him because he realizes there's no other choice. Just as Russell says, if it wasn't going to be you, it was going to be someone else, and the only way that I could save your life was if I had you in on this. So again, it's that feeling of you owe me. He owes him his life, and so out of respect for that, he has to go through and do it. Um, he does it for self-preservation purposes. He does it to save his family. In some ways, he does it for money, which he references earlier by getting a larger family, means you got to make more money, means you got to take more jobs. But at that point, that's not really what it's about. Uh, anywho, after that dastardly deed is done, um, we, we jump around a bit. We see the trial. We see it all falling apart. But really, it's already all falling apart for Frank. When he speaks on the phone to Jimmy Hoffa's wife, that's when he develops the vocal stutter for the first time. That's when he can't get the words out of his mouth. He later references that as the hardest moment in his life. Like, who makes a call like that? He looks back with regret on his actions, and that's the one that stands out the most to him. And naturally, of course, he loses his whole family because they hate him for killing their family friend and uh, his only friend. So at that point, he's, he is lost. If, if he had a soul to be saved, it was gone when he killed Jimmy Hoffa as the only person who still believed really in the good of him. I would say quickly also, Jimmy Hoffa's character, uh, not a good person. In fact, basically nope. none of the characters in this are good people. Um, the things he does are wildly self-serving. His bombastic, over-the-top nature often has to do with manipulating people. And many of the very honest interactions that he has, he does to get people to do things for him. I mean, he brings his good friend to tears in asking him to be uh, president of one of the branches, as well as going up and speaking so nicely of him. All of this is the best day of Robert De Niro's life, or Frank's life, rather. And that makes it so sad that Russell Bufflino is also there just as the reminder, a reminder that you don't get to have a good life. Because of the things you've done, because of the people that you owe, not just money, but that you owe your life to. What you feel right now is, is fake and temporary and will probably be taken away from you very soon. And it is. And in the same night, he's given a token of Jimmy Hoffa's affection. He's also given a token of, of Russell Buffalino's affection in that ring that we see him wear. And we see the ring and the watch throughout the movie well throughout the movie runtime not chronologically naturally he only gets those after a point but they are the two important people in his life really which is is sad considering he has a family with many members but they're not important to him his whole life is his work and so the only two people he cared about were two guys jimmy hoffa well you know one of which he kills because of what the other guy said but he still keeps the token to remember that which is I think interesting as a memento, I feel of maybe what he's lost. Not that that's what's been taken away from him, but that's what he gave up. Um, and the rest of the movie plays out 
I much much like it did in Goodfellas and after the last pin drops, the cops come, they take everything, he goes to jail. We see how all of these hardened criminals slowly rot and die in prison, getting their just desserts, but they never really change. And that tells me that the director is trying to say something that there's something innate within these people that makes them behave this way, that makes them have this sort of quiet confidence and this disdain for everybody, not them. That we see even when Russell Buffalino's hands are shaking from very, very late stage uh, cognitive ability loss and uh, motor ability loss. But even still, his words are, you know, fuck him. He doesn't, he doesn't care. He looks back with a like without regret. Something which Frank does not exactly have the privilege to do, but he's in that crowd now, so he has to live that life. And that being then the overly verbose wrap-up of what happens for the wide angle, I think that there's a moment which crystallizes the entire arc of this movie, and it's shown very early. And it's shown when Robert Nero walks German soldiers into their grave and ask them to dig it. And he doesn't realize it at the time, but the conversation he's having there and then that conversation that he's having with Russell Buffalino about where he learned Italian, his experiences in the war, that is the start of him digging his own grave. And he does it shovelful at a time, uh, murder by murder until he's in way over his head and he couldn't get out of the grave he dug himself, even if he wanted to. And then he's, he's, he's killed off, not, not killed off physically. He outlasts every character, but his, who he is as a man is killed off when he, he kills so many people. Um, to cite Harry Potter, every time you kill a person, a part of your soul breaks off. And Frank's character has so many horcruxes at this point that there's nothing really left of him. And in that moment, he's dead. He's been shot by Russell Buffalino, who's been standing over him digging his whole grave this whole time, and he never even realized it. Given this is a scientific publication, I might as well cite a very well-known science paper in The Frogs, the lobotomized frogs put in the boiling water. And it's only at the point that it's far too late to do anything about it that he realizes just how SOL he is. There's a lot of shit. There's a lot of shit in this movie that's deserving of conversation. But please, I've I've monologued for too long, and I need your input. Well, the monologue is our preferred form of discourse. To quote video oh, drone. video drone <laughs> reference. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, one of the things that I really usually like, gravitated towards in what you said was actually this kind of like trifecta of Frank, Jimmy Hoffa, and Russell Buffalino. Is it is kind of like a um, you know, like the shoulder devil and angel sort of thing. Yeah. And neither of them are the angel. They're both <laughs> kind of self-serving devil. They are really like different versions of the prince from like the Nicola, uh, Nicola Machiavelli's to be feared or loved. And you do have like Russell Buffalino, who is very feared, is like, and Jimmy Hoffa, who is very much loved, is like, and you do see that this movie presents kind of the same outcome as Machiavelli did, which is... Mm the person will side with the person they fear over the person that they love. And I don't think, I think that's a little bit reductionist in the way, because I think he does have a lot of love for Russell Buffalino. I think he does have a lot of respect for him. 
but there is something to be said that in the actual book um i heard you paint houses when they when asked like do you feel bad about jimmy hop he's like well yeah but like you know he was gonna die anyway if it wasn't me and if i didn't kill him then i was definitely dead too and so it's yeah it's one like, he had he he wasn't he had no uh no misconceptions about where his relationship with Russell was going, like was, uh, was going like, if he continued to play ball, he would continue to have that respect that he had earned. And he might be, continue to be safe. If he dropped the ball at any point, at any moment, he was probably going to be killed. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, I also think that that does factor in really well to what you're, is like what I call like a microcosm scene, which is German soldiers, so that scene is like the microcosm is like scene is like um well, I didn't realize that it actually has a sister scene much later in the movie when Frank is buying his own coffin. Um, oh yes, it is kind of like an understanding of like he says of the German soldiers who are bare, is like pretty much digging their own grave. He could never understand why they would do that. Like, did they think that if they did a good enough job, they wouldn't they weren't going to get killed? And then later on in his life, when he's older, he's like, he has this moment where he's gone and he's buying his own coffin and he buys his green one. It's like, it is kind of like this funny like moment of kind of, he's kind of realizing now, maybe he's not realizing, but where you should be realizing his audience is that like, we're all kind of, we're all going to die in some way or another. Everyone is, is like slowly is like um, digging their own grave. But this, like these people are actually doing it in a much more like, is it, is it in a way that they're not necessarily aware of it, but we're aware of it because we keep on seeing over everyone's head as they show up. It's like, Oh, it's this person. They were shot yeah. three times. In the- <laughs> and so the mortality of these people is always on our mind. And so when we see either the scene with the German soldiers or the scene with the buying, you can kind of get this feeling that this lifestyle these people have chosen is going to lead to their eventual demise. And they've, without knowing it, maybe have made this choice that they, um, that this is the life that they're going to stick with until it eventually either kills them or leaves them wasting away with all of their worldly connections withered. I really did love how it did show how people died as they're being introduced because I felt it, it grounded the film in a way that made it not glamorize the organized crime element as other Scorsese movies have, because he paints these very intense characters who are to be respected. They're to be feared. And you understand that they're, uh, they have BDE, you know, they're, they're exciting characters. You want to, you want to pay attention to what they've got going on. And in very plain texts, it just like, oh, shot in the face three times. Great. Not too long from now, actually, either. And so you learn about all of these very powerful people who just all die like everybody else. And so it's it paints a very well, realistic and grim picture of how living living like that can end and does end in every case besides really Frank's. I believe he's the only one, well, given it's all from Frank's perspective, we would have never had the opportunity to see that text in front of him, but he's the only one who survives everybody else. Um, Mm -hmm. They're all either, well, most of them die on screen, but uh, you know, many of them, (laughs) many of them are just shown to, to die kind of simple, 
simple everyday human lives after. All of the crime bosses who go to prison just you know, die there. Cool. Okay, so moving on to my overarching element, my wide-angle lens, as it were, is actually something to do with the look and the sound behind the Irishman. So Scorsese is known for having like a very wide um, film language. He uses many different kinds of shots. Um, he ain't no one trick pony, that's for sure. And The Irishman is no exception. You have everything from like very simple shot reverse shots for conversations, even shot reverse shots between time and space where Frank is like transferring messages from Jimmy Hoffa to the mob and then back. So it's like they're having a conversation, but they're not actually having a conversation because Frank's the messenger boy back and forth. But it's shot like they're having a conversation because it's like back and forth between them when really quick edits. You go all the way from that to like jump cuts where you basically cut on like on the it's like a cut on motion to another completely different scene or a completely different environment to make a very jarring change between the two so that you draw attention to the edit. So like, this is when he's talking about like whispers, the actual <laughs> whispers, not the one in the movie who got blown up with the car. And there's that quick like insert shot of like a car blowing up, which comes back later when Jimmy Hoffa's wife turns the ignition is like key on the car. And then there's this quick insert shot of a, another car, of the car blowing up and it goes back to her perfectly fine, startled because you're trying to put her into that mindset. And then we have, the long shots, the tracking shots. So in like what I would call like film bro movie Twitter canon, the tracking shot is considered like the mm. be all and end all. It's a long one take where you basically follow characters through an environment. And quite often, one of the most famous ones actually comes from Goodfellas, where the lead characters go into the Coca Cabana. It's like down through this hallway kind of, bringing you into the world and the luxury that it has. And this movie also has long one-shot tracking shots, but instead of them being these really big flashy, like look at the world, how great it is, they're generally long tracking shots down a hallway, which is when I first saw it, it stuck out to me. Like I'm like, why would you use such a flashy shot to just be like walking down a hallway? And it showed up again something here so the second time through i made note of these and that'll bring us into my kind of more standard lens the scene specific and it's actually three scenes so the first scene is when um is like, the very beginning of the movie and it starts off in this hospital and you're watching the camera slowly move down the hallway kind of lazily peering to the left and the right to take in all the old folks at this old folks home um, playing chess, watching TV, talking to ministers because it's a Catholic um, retirement home. And then it finally gets to the end of its road and there's Frank alone with his ring on his, with his big ring from the mob on his left ring finger where his wedding <laughs> ring should be. And the Jimmy Hoffa's like, uh, watch that he gave to him also on his left hand. And then he begins talking. It's like, and so that was the first, that's where, how they open the shot. It's like they'll open the whole movie um, with this moment. And instead of it being this really flashy, like, let's go, let's go, it's the, it is this kind of like somber, slow introduction to what this world has become. Like the, and I think it is meant to draw like a direct parallel to it's like, remember how fun and fancy free Goodfellas was at the beginning? It's like, this is where this is going to end up. <laughs> You're not in Kansas anymore. Not nice. 
you ain't in Kansas no more, kid. And then the second time they do this is actually, um, it's the first time we see real violence in the movie, um, but we don't even actually get to see it. Um, there's the man who's related to the mob somehow, and he's in a barber shop. And the camera follows as his bodyguard just leaves his post, walks down a hallway, and then the camera stops following the bodyguard and switches to follow these two men in, like in big coats and top hats. Well, not top hats, but nice hats walking the other direction so it does kind of this like 180 flip back to follow them back down the hallway into the barber shop where they go and shoot this person but instead of following them in to see the violence it just kind of pans away and then focuses in on these flowers right? and then in the background you can hear the shooting and the screaming it's like this first real violent act but then it won't show you the violence it's kind of like men just focus on the flowers is almost kind of like but don't worry about it look at the flowers that's not gonna do there's a lot of times where the camera looks away from what we know is happening, which I think makes it uh, even more punchy when we do remain on the character who ends up getting killed. Something I loved about this movie's like film direction was how much space it gave the characters, with perhaps the only exceptions being very intimate conversational scenes when the characters took up the bulk of the, the screen. Most of the shots including the tracking shots, which hallmark of Scorsese. Um, but any conversational shots often have a lot of background in them. And this does two amazing things. The first one is just because I absolutely love set design and it really makes you feel immersed to have all of that shown off. I'm glad that they got to show the good work of the people who did the set design there. But it also makes these people seem like players in a larger game because mm. it's the whole world isn't just them. I know, I know I've spoken to you at length about my, my personal distaste for shaky cam, for, yes. uh, for poor handheld, handheld camera, when, in yep. which uh, oh, it makes me nauseous for more than one reason. But this movie had rock solid, literally so many static shots. I just loved mm -hmm. it. Super, I, I, I bet even despite its length, I, I suspect that this movie had a similar number of cuts as a regular feature film just because of how long it let the shot it let the shots linger on and really let you think about it it's also a yeah. movie which allowed you to see watch a character think which doesn't happen a lot if they were told some very important important piece of news or if they were coming to some decision they would just sit there take three seconds and then say something they would allow it to sit for a while even if they were going to cut away, except for when they were doing those conversational shot reverse shots, they would allow the camera to stay for almost a, a painfully long time on characters just to see their reaction to stuff. It made it feel a lot more organic to me. And I suspect yeah. it's one of the reasons the runtime was a little longer, but it made the characters feel so much more real, made it feel so much more immersive, and also got to show off a lot more of the character nuance. Having someone react to news is really a mark of how they are as an actor. And when you have a film with so many good actors, might as well give them a little bit of time to play. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like if you have Pesci, De Niro and Pacino on, like, on board, then why not yeah. just put the camera on them and let it go? Um, one of, like this film was edited by like a longtime collaborator, uh, Scorsese. She edited many of his movies, including Silence. 
And I do feel like they found a good rhythm. Like, um, mm. Because despite the fact that this movie is like 3.5 hours long, there were very few parts of it where I actually really felt its length. Like there was, there was I think, yeah. two scenes um, where I actually like, like kind of came out of the movie a little bit and said like, oh my God, how long have I been watching this for? But otherwise, the pacing is so well done. And every scene is kind of built on top of the one before it that yep. barring those few examples, it would be hard to remove any of those scenes without feeling like the whole house of cards would come down. And, and I do think that that's because they set a very deliberate pace from the very beginning that kind of like brings you in. Brings you in, walks you through the whole thing. And he's, he's a man of few words. So everything he says is important. He walks you through what it is. And then we move on to the next part. Uh, the lighting in this movie is quite understated despite often showing a lot uh, on screen. Again, I, I mentioned gives the characters a lot of space. The lighting is such that your attention is always on the right part. And so that means that the background is often quite dark in this movie. So, so muted. The sound design as well uh, reuses a lot of the same songs, which is a really good trick for getting people back into a certain mindset because they think of the last time they heard that music and it's like, okay, now we know what sort of mood you're going for, um, as well as all of their costume designs just being simple suits like that. There was not too much over the top. And I'm glad that you mentioned silence because in many ways, which I mentioned earlier, uh, allowing the camera time to linger on a character who's just thinking, also showing the character's reaction to violence more so than the violence itself I, I saw a lot of comparisons to be taken with that movie. Um, I mean, there's also something to be said to the slow moral decay of a character, but that has less to do of its, the shooting of it than it does with the, the arc of it. But I, I can definitely see the commonalities there. Uh, it's like, it's like, I really, I liked silence. Um, and it's like, it, you feel like they do um they learned a lot yeah from it, like you said like not just in terms of like the allowing them to react in terms of the setting a deliberate pace allowing people to sit in uncomfortable situations for an extended period of time and kind of unlike maybe like uh, goodfellas or casino where the suffering was the attraction in this case it's like the internal turmoil as a result of the suffering that's more of like what's on yeah. display um it brings like a more melancholy um, kind of like soul dis like disintegrating aspect to the movie that I feel it was lacking from previous gangster movies done by Scorsese, especially. Um, and it really does like, uh, is it, it really, I think allowed him to explore a lot of his more kind of like religious and spiritual themes, which are not big in the Irishman, but do show up near the end was like well he has confession. catholicism yeah exactly like he has his confession near the end um i think there's something to be said too for the, the stiff upper lip of irish catholicism that he has throughout the whole movie yes <laughs> yes it's like and like you do have that like scene which is like like perhaps an homage to the godfather maybe not of like when he's having his like child christened yeah so they you see his first child being christened and then by the time we get to like the second child being christened, it's now like the entire family of like the like of the mob is there. They're all part of it now. And like and Russell Buffalino is actually the one holding the baby and like doing the christening. It's like it's a 
method of like seeing it even in this moment, even in this kind of more spiritual supposed holy moment, it, they've, they've come this far. They have in, penetrated his life this far that they are also here. They are also yeah. is like in between him and his, like his religion now. They, Russell Bolfino stands between Frank and his wife, Frank and his family, Frank and his friend, and Frank and his, his God, which is a, a level of influence, which, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, there's something to be said there, but he, uh, I, I, I didn't actually think about that as a reference to Godfather, but it's got to be, right? <laughs> yeah, you'd think so, right? It, it's such yeah. an iconic scheme, the, the settling of all business. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so before we move on from the results section, there was actually one last long tracking shot. And it's not an exceptionally long tracking shot, but it's one that I want to bring up. Because my fascination with these hallway tracking shots is like um, aside. <laughs> Everyone's got a thing, and mine is long, monotonous tracking shots down a hallway, especially if they go one direction down a hallway and then turn around and come back. And so if you have this barber shop death, it's like the camera moves down the hallway following a person, then turns around and follows the people back before getting distracted and looking at some flowers. We have one of the very final scenes is when... Frank is in the retirement home. A nurse is there, is like, and she is like uh, uh, giving yes. some tests. And then she leaves the room, and the camera follows her down the hallway, and then turns back around. And as it turns, we have a time, like a time skip from the daytime to suddenly it's night, and then it slowly goes in. But this time, instead of carrying on down the hallway and getting distracted by something, it actively turns slowly into Frank. This time, there's no way to escape death. This is coming for you. It's going to be now or really, really soon. And so I did love the like the kind of pairing of those shots like throughout how they kind of like the idea of like how a, ca- a camera going down a hallway isn't especially cinematic in theory. But the I kind of like want is like the unidirectionality of it. The idea of like he's like being able to go through and kind of look in, but there's like a finality to the destination, like it's heading in that direction. And even if you try to go the other way, it's still going to turn you around and you're going to go back. And even if you try to stare at some flowers or try to distract yourself, you can't because eventually everybody dies. I think there's actually a couple different possibilities for what the crack in the door represents or what it's trying to tell us about Frank. And they're not mutually exclusive, which is one of my favorite things about movies. So we can interpret this in a couple ways and maybe some of them all together. My first sort of baseline guess was that this is an old mob thing. Just like you take the corner seat looking at the door, I thought it might be a case where, you know, just like Frank has been shown to be superstitious about not wanting to sit in the front with a hitman behind him in a car, this might be one of his things that has kept him alive this long. Just, you know, don't close the door, then if someone sneaks in, no one sees it, no noise, something like that. However, I think that's kind of a stretch given everyone else is dead, the late stage of his life. I could see that Frank still holds on to those rituals, but I find that a little less likely. Um, I think it's more likely that this is representative of the closing of Frank's life. We see a very small crack of light coming through and the door is closing. The, The last chapter of his life is closing with him behind it, alone, 
with no one to see him, nothing to do, no one coming to see him on Christmas. And so it's just a depiction of loneliness. He's isolated himself by pushing everyone away and now sits a man about to die in as much of an alone state as you can get. Uh, and I really think that those are going to be the, the popular ways to take it, but there's something potential also about how that's all Frank has anyone ever let anyone in on him. He's never been one to share a good deal. He doesn't ever talk about really what's on his mind, even to the audience. And so looking in on Frank's life, we see just a sliver of him, just like we've only ever seen. So one of those we could potentially see as a dynamic as the closing, the last chapter of his life. And one of them we could see as a static reality, which is all we've ever gotten to see of Frank is just a sliver of where the light happens to fall on him. Uh, I am inclined to just go. It's just the end of his life. It's just a scene to show you how sad he is because visual storytelling, uh, old man, slouched over in a chair alone seen from a hallway through a partially open door. It's just sad to look at. And I have to believe that. Yeah, that's, indeed. that's my best guess, but there are several potential hypotheses, none of which are mutually exclusive and certainly not collectively exhaustive. Yeah. So I had the, my, my first instinct, which I think is still probably my most one is actually your option too, is that it is, kind of the enfeebled attempts of a person who has really no connections left in the world, kind of opening up this door as like a feeble sign of hope of like, this is the closest you can get to having like connection with the outside world. Now I still maintain that that's probably the, like the most likely scenario. Someone mentioned how um, when he's the first night he stayed in the Hoffa in a hotel, um, Hoffa leaves the door open just. Bedroom oh, the yeah. Yeah is doing that was like probably out of um your option one out of like a practicality but there is some sort of like interesting echo between those two of hoffa kind of leaving this door open for like person outside and then it's like frank asking the same thing many years later but there's no one on the other side of the door anymore these many sister scenes that i'm so impressed at your attention to detail and research of being able to find these it's a Throughout the movie, this quantum entanglement, which ties together the parts of Frank's life, and we can see that <laughs> everything he does has been influenced by someone else. He has so many learned behaviors. I mean, as I suppose yeah. everyone does, but many of his are... He's a character that's lifted from the things he likes of many other people, which I find interesting. He's, mm -hmm. uh, he's not a man on his own. He exists as part of other people. And it wouldn't surprise me if this is something that he picked up uh, now to rem from his friend, but now to in remembrance of him. It also could yeah. be that's why Frank does it, but the reason why Scorsese, Scorsese showed us is to to show us how, how lonely the end of this life is and that he, just anyone, he just wants to interact with even a, pa a stranger passing by in the hall is as good of social interaction as he could hope for. It, it, like, it is a really haunting final scene of just this old man seen through this crack in the door. Yeah. Like, um, Boys and there. immediately as like, it cuts out and then suddenly is like in the heat of the night, it like, starts up again. The song that started the movie is like about 
two lovers holding each other at night waiting for the light to come is it, it's just like a really sad like almost ironic setup that this person doesn't have anybody and that he's is like he is in a lot of ways waiting for the light to come but when the light comes it's going to take him with him yeah yeah the light is his his only light at the end of the tunnel is dying which is yeah sad in which many depending ways. on what you believe might not be much of a light i think that he understands that Either if there is someplace after he's damned already, or he just doesn't value that as highly as his his own simplistic moral code. Yep. He even when any, everyone right. else is dead, the interviewers talk to him at the end. It's like, who are you protecting? And yeah, but it's just not. Uh, that's just was never never what it was about for him. Uh, nope. You know, he he feels a responsibility to them even though they've passed, which is it, what it's what that's they, here's the thing, but it's what makes you like this character because you understand his motivations. Like you understand why he's done the things that he's done and it makes a certain kind of logic, even if it makes no goddamn sense. No, <laughs> he's, he's, he's not relatable, but he's understandable. And that that's yeah. what makes him such a good character because if he takes an action, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's that's on brand Frank. Like that's that's what Frank would do in this situation. Even if yeah, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he even knows it. The the slow the slow decline of his morality seems inoxorable because of how mm. stubborn he is. Because of his yeah. commitment to values which are so self-destructive. But the only thing that keeps him sane is strict adherence to these this this code of ethics yeah it is like my favorite form of fate and is like in uh film and other media is not the fate of like a divine being but the fight of like the in the fate of the inflexibility of like the human condition where this person is doomed because they're never going to make a different choice they could yeah they always could but they're never going to do it it's going to lead to the same inevitable end and it's like um it's not an end of the of the divine or the end of the devil. It's like just the end of like humanity. The end that you're just going to make that choice, and no matter how many times you're presented with it, you'll keep making it. This is perhaps a little shoehorned in, but any opportunity I get to talk about venerated sociologist Max Weber, I'm going to take because this his entire his entire life is encapsulated by the iron cage of reason which is a mm. simple sociological phenomena that when you've made your life into a flowchart, when at stimulus A, you'll always respond with the same thing, when you live so strictly and so stubbornly, you put yourself in a cage and lose free will, which is a big loss of humanity. And I think that we see... Frank trapped in an iron cage of his own making. Earlier, I said that the movie called that digging his own grave, but for the purpose of cross analogy, you know, people have called it more than one thing. He's unable to escape mm. from a prison in many ways of his own design, and he's trapped there by what he feels are his core values, and he's unwilling to change those values. This, this I thought might be some kind of segue lest we stay in the results it? forever 
for yeah which you know is like um i wish i could we're not, we're not a nature paper <laughs> yeah, we're not a nature paper we're not gonna have like 15 figures and then another like 16 supplementary figures in our results no 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 we, we ain't doing that shit here no here at the arts union side it's like it's a solid hour on the results and then we're out <laughs> to the discussion no, that's good i no one likes flipping through to the supplementals let's get it let's get it all out now all right so we're going to move on to the discussion so for Wonderful. those who don't know, the discussion casts the key questions about its place in the wider canon hopefully provides some answers. In this case, it'll be for The Irishman, and we're going to be reaching out to other Scorsese movies and beyond to figure out some of these questions, these answers, and if we actually know what the hell we're talking about. So do you want to start with, like, with the first discussion point? Okay, so... My first discussion point is the question about the cost of the cost of violence. So in this movie, we see that Frank is forever changed by acts of violence. It changes his personality. It changes his the way he speaks. It changes the way people see him, the way he's able to interact with other people. And <laughs> to quote longtime uh, and favorite movie, A Knight's Tale, A Man Can't Change His Stars. And I don't think that Scorsese is trying to say that someone is born a killer, will be a killer, and always live like that. But it does appear to me that in his many movies, someone who comes to participate in violence inevitably participates in that for the rest of their lives and also that violent delights end violently. The comparison I might make here is to much earlier Scorsese work in Gangs of New York in which a character is born into a crime family um, in Leo's character and then leaves. He has the opportunity to leave because, well, Daniel Day-Lewis murders his father in front of his eyes. So, you know, it's not all great, but it happens. And yep. then he's We've shown when there. he returns. Yeah, yeah, he's shown when he returns to not be terrible. He's not as bad as the people that he comes back and sees. And so I think that that shows us that Scorsese doesn't believe in sort of innate evil. You know, we do talk about the Catholicism a lot here in, Part of that involves original sin, but uh, without getting into that too much, I don't think that this movie suggests that you'll be you'll be violent from the day you're born to the day you die, but decisions that you make will forever alter your character. You'll be burdened by the weight of those murders. And we see that in Gangs of New York when really Leo becomes ever more like the Butcher in learning from him and, you know, kills people he eventually it all goes to hell in a violent brawl on the streets of, of bloody murder and i think i see parables to that in the irishman when his initial killings in the army allow him to go along with that type of behavior very easily so he can slip into not any sort of rage he seems upset when he kills somebody but he's not yelling he's not screaming he's just enacting violence and we see that the deeper he leans into that the really the worse it gets for him 
Uh, we see that also with the Leonardo DiCaprio character in The Departed when a plucky cop wants to not look like a cop, but be a cop, and in doing so, surrounds himself with villains. And when he spends this much time around what he describes as a mass murderer, it affects him greatly. He's not able to, he does not lose himself in that, but it takes a tremendous toll on his psyche. And the question I propose is what type of, how much of yourself do you lose when you participate in violence? And Scorsese suggests you lose a lot. Um, the participants of violence in The Goodfellas have terrible retributions enacted upon them. The Joe Pesci's character in that, through his violent tendencies, ends up getting himself killed. In fact, all of those characters end up being pushed out of that life, if not to die, at least to live a life that they never wanted in protective custody. Um, and then also say that their regular life is forever changed. In the last shot of the Goodfellas, when he's standing in his suburban home, he's miserable. He can't. A, a normal life has been ruined for him by the actions that he's taken. Uh, Taxi Driver is kind of an easy one because the more he participates and exalts in violence, the more he becomes insane um, yep. and wants to act on it. So that's a pretty pretty linear moral decline, but also serves as a bit of a negative control for this because he doesn't have the environment which all of the other movies do. All of the other movies and the Irishman, Goodfellas, Departed, I mean, to a lesser extent, Casino, because the protagonist in that is in some ways away from crime, but certainly Gangs of New York, um, they're all surrounded by criminals who yep. exalt in their behavior and make the slide into that depravity not only easy, but in some cases, fun. Um, so this acts as a good negative control, which is if you participated in violence and indulge violent ideas, is it dependent on your surroundings to propagate that? And with the test of taxi driver, I'd say no. I'd say that even if you act violently, even if you act morally depraved, that still takes a toll on your soul even if your surroundings aren't exulting in your depravity. So your soul is still eaten up. Your who you are is still forever changed by these terrible acts. Even if you're not continuously egged on to greater and greater levels of them. I think we could take a certain degree of, of a positive control from something like the Bronx tale in which it's entirely related to his surroundings. The Bronx tale is largely about a, a good person, um, but every single person around him, and interestingly enough, also a Robert De Niro movie who, who does not play as much of a bad guy in that one, um, but in befriending a crime boss and in having everybody around him constantly glorify criminals, we can see that he too glorifies those things, but he doesn't lose the, the, the parts of his soul that are so crucial to his humanity until he would participate in those actual acts of violence, which, in fact, he walks away from. So this tells me that 
it is not sufficient to lose your morality just to be surrounded by people who exalt in it, as well as you don't need people to surround you in that in that depravity to suffer from violence-ridden moral decay in those movies. So I think that we can get a good positive and negative control there where we have a fish out of water, boy with good intentions, befriends gangsters, still chooses to not participate in that violence and as such is is saved. And in another case, a man separated from, well, not just that, but the entirety of society still fall into violent indulgences and suffer from the same sort of moral decay that we see in Scorsese's other movies. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, Taxi Driver is interesting because in the main character's mind, he is surrounded by criminals and terrible things. Like, that's the weird thing is like, his environment for him isn't like, look at all these people doing these things. I want to do that. It's look at all these terrible, terrible people around me. They're all horrible. Yeah. And a lot like what we were talking about with Frank, but also in is like Raging Bull and whatnot. It's like, these are people who have been conditioned to use violence to solve problems because of like circumstances that are above and beyond the usual calling of life for both Frank and Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver, who's like who was in World War II and Vietnam War, respectively, or in Raging Bull, where you have a, it's like the character who has basically been, it's like a chicken or the egg scenario. Was he really good at inflicting violence and became a good boxer, or did he become a good boxer and then the violence in the ring spread beyond that? Yeah, it's like to his uh, his domestic life. So you have that kind of interesting idea of like how violence can permeate once it gets there. Is like it uh it kind of spreads it out. If you were is like if you were to use um a knight's tale, a man can change his stars, I might use a Star Wars quote, which is once you start down the dark path, forever will it consume your destiny. The idea that once you start slipping is like into that is like into that use, um, it just becomes incredibly easy to continue sliding yeah. further and further into it. And maybe there are characters like I haven't seen uh, a Bronx tale. Was that was what it was called? Yep. I thought that you were talking about Rumble in the Bronx when you were actually talking about A Bronx Tale. Um, very different movies, uh, yes. from my understanding. Um, like both seemingly about crime. Crime happens in those <laughs> in both those movies. Crime happens. However, Rumble in the Bronx includes a scene in which the police after arresting the criminals spend two full minutes beating the shit out of them so perhaps a more realistic depiction of law enforcement but yeah less of a glamorous one yeah well it is something to be said that in like a movie like bronx tale you have a character who is able to stop their downwards descent by basically kicking in their heels um but it is very easy and energetically favorable to just let yourself slip into further and further acts of violence as you go yes. down. You are, you are so right. A movie I wish I could compare to this, but I have not seen is The Untouchables, which has Robert De Niro playing um, Al Capone, I believe. That sounds right. Yeah, quite an old one, but oh. works great. Sees him very differently. And I do want to touch on this briefly because it's, it's very crucial to how this movie operates. 
In this movie, Frank is not a gunslinger. Unlike many of the cool guy protagonists who are involved in crime in a myriad of other movies, Frank is not particularly adept at really anything. Um, He kills people by walking up to them and shooting them in the face when they're not looking. Not exactly (laughs) Keanu Reeves, John Wick shit. So, really, the only superpower he has is amorality. He just doesn't care about killing people, and that's that. But he, he, I mean, this is this is a product of Robert De Niro actually being physically old when they film this. But even young Robert De Niro, as shown in this movie, walks around like an old man. When he beats that guy up for touching his daughter, he just kind of lumbers over to him, punches him a couple times, gives him a couple kicks, breaks his hand. And it's all like very matter of fact. He doesn't do any fancy moves. He just, the other guy can't fight back. So he beats the crap out of him. It's uh, so I'm glad that you- it's something which means that they couldn't have done this to tell a different story, but it does mean that this anti-aging stuff all works totally fine with this. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad that you brought up that, that um, scene again, because I think that would be a good way to transition to uh, that women have in Scorsese's movies in general, but specifically in The Irishman. Um, it's no secret, I think, that Scorsese's movies have been um, kind of lambasted in the past for their depiction of their lead female, like female yeah. actresses. Yeah, that's pretty true. Yeah. yeah, either they are objectified, brutalized, um, painted as kind of crazy and emotionally manic. Yeah, that's a popular um, one. Yeah, especially in both Goodfellas and Casino. Goodfellas Definitely Casino. Uh, character oh my God. Karen. Oh God, a Casino. But Karen and Goodfellas, at least, like, she has her own voiceover, which is like the only time that that ever happens in the Scorsese movie where a, a woman gets a voiceover. But it like kind of drops out halfway through the movie. It's like, and it's very clear that the story is really about Henry. And then she's just kind of along for the ride, often yelling and like, and so it's something to be said that not a lot of like Scorsese may not be the best at writing for women. So it's like, it's so it might be an interesting choice that he's made in the Irishman where he's just kind of removed them (laughs) either are like potently and like, like observably absent such as frank's wife who he doesn't talk about them he doesn't even wear the ring (laughs) no he won't even wear the ring he's wearing his gangster ring on his left hand um but inherently the character who like the female character who has the most screen time but the fewest lines is peggy played by anna paquin who's like glare her judgmental moralistic Layer that she has throughout this movie is possibly the best, in my opinion, the best use Scorsese's had for a female character, which is weird to say, but I, I just feel like yeah. if he starts to try to like give them a voice, he's just gonna screw it up. It feels like her silence is a pointed note that her father doesn't know her, can never know her because is like of the life that he's chosen, and that this life is not only silencing her, but silencing everybody, every woman is like, who's looking in on this like male dominated macho life of gangsterism. Yeah. It's, it's one of, 
my only complaint about the movie is that I feel like I never got to learn anything about Frank's family and that these characters were underused. And that I initially kind of tore me up. I'm like, like, what, what do you do? And I feel like for me to understand Frank, I need to understand the relationship with his wife, with the relationship with his kids. And then in our conversation and in speaking with others, I realized that, well, that is his relationship. We don't there get to meet them because Frank doesn't know them. And the frustration that we feel is the frustration that Frank feels for having put himself in this situation. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the first thing about Peggy. Her interactions are so surface level as are like her sisters who never get any screen time except for once to talk about Peggy. Yep. And it makes me feel like those characters are underutilized. But then it, that's the point. The point is that Frank doesn't care about his family. And because this movie is all from Frank's perspective, we don't, as an audience, get to see them. And so I actually, it's kind of awkward to think that you need to frustrate your audience to get them to understand a point. But yep. to make someone know that something is scary, you have to scare them. To make them know that something is uncomfortable and disgusting, you have to make your audience uncomfortable and disgusted. And for us to feel or understand Frank's feelings of frustration and loneliness, we need to completely remove these characters and make the audience frustrated for never ever, ever getting to meet them. Yeah. There's because like Anna Paquin really has only like two lines in the whole movie. And it's like a perfect example of the rule where like, if you're going to set a rule in filmmaking, you set it so that you can break it. And that is like <laughs> the, in the breaking of it, it'll have like a much more resonant feeling with the audience. Yeah. So we've seen her, just staring angrily throughout this whole movie. She hasn't said a word. And then finally, when Jimmy Hoffa is missing and they're watching the news and Frank says, yeah, I haven't even called Joe yet. And then she asks, why? He says, what? And it's almost like the entire audience is going, huh? Did you just say something? <laughs> and she's like, why haven't you called Joe? And it's that moment where like in her like voicing just those two lines, it has so much more weight than if she yeah. had been speaking the whole movie. Um, this might just be like a male viewer trying to explain why a male filmmaker was like had like hired a very famous actress to say nothing, but I do <laughs> feel like it's similar to actually um, Margot Robbie's performance is like in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood recently. It is a, like a performance with very few lines that that actress like lends a lot of weight to the picture with her presence and how she holds herself on screen, Thanks. and the few times that she had to speak. She really brings down that hammer. Thank God Martin Scorsese just doesn't have the same kind of thing for feet Tarantino does. I, I do appreciate that. <laughs> it's it's one thing to leave the female characters high and dry by the wayside, you know, in terms of plot relevance. It's another to do that and then also wildly sexualize them. Not that I don't enjoy a good Tarantino movie, but oh boy, does he have some... Uh, his movies speak volumes in ways that <laughs> he probably you, doesn't uh, even know. Aren't always comfortable. <laughs> yeah, we aren't, aren't always comfortable <laughs> in watching. Uh, I, I actually believe that now this isn't done by Anna Packin. A younger Peggy mm. comes down the stairs to see her dad sneaking out in the middle of the night to go kill somebody yeah. and ask him, you know, what, what are, are you doing? doing? He says, yeah. oh, got to go to work. And so 
you know that she cares about her dad. She's interested in what he's doing. She's observing him and is worried about him and what that means for their family throughout. And it's only after he kills Jimmy Hoffa that she's just, she's done with it. You know, she's done caring. She's seen that their relationship is, is entirely devoid of content and uh, sort of gives up on him then fair enough, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a uh, is it the scene after he makes the call to Joe and he basically says like I lost my daughter that day because that was the it's like but to us as like of the audience like he never had her she was she's been lost from like from the get go it's like and we can we've been able to trace this all the way through it's like and they do a really good job of like putting the insert shots in of either the young Peggy or the older Peggy observing all these things and silently being the moral compass that's judging all of these things. If there was a moment that any viewer is get, becoming complacent and kind of happy yeah. that like, this is going, that is like, Oh, well, you know, I'm glad is like, I'm, I'm kind of getting to this world and you know, it's not that bad. So there's those like withering glares really like bring you back to where you were. It cuts, it cuts deep into your soul to, to see Peggy stare at you. And she does it a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't watch this with subs on, but somehow I imagine that staring intensifies would come up in many a scene that she was in. You'd hope so. It's like if there's any if there's any merit to the closed caption community, you'd bring that in. Yeah, they would need to know how intense that stare is, and it's sad. I don't know. It's sad. It's sad that his family clearly cared about him, and he just left it all behind. But we get to know why that is throughout. The movie tells us, basically shot for shot, the problems that he, Frank, puts his family in and why they hate him for it. You know, He says that they never wanted to talk to him because they were afraid he would do something terrible, which, yeah. A, they say directly, and he does. They yeah. actively despise his, his boss, um, Buffalino, um, mm -hmm. and... It's that sort of unapproachability, which Frank gets to be more and more of as he gets older and as he gets more interactions with Russell. Um, and it has nothing to do with, you know, he tries to buy them over. I think Russell, on a couple occasions, once at a bowling alley and once at Christmas when he's invited over, gives her gifts of some kind, which she just could not care less about because no. she sees him as the man who's corrupted her father and would never forgive him about it and ultimately doesn't forgive her father for it either. And then she knows exactly. When the second he walks in that door, I think it's pretty clear that she knows he killed Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, he doesn't do a good job of hiding it. <laughs> no, no, he does not. Uh, not on the phone, not talking to his family. And at the very least, that shows us that there's it's sad to say but in that that moment it hurts him that lets the audience know that he at that time still had some humanity left he yeah. there was still something left of him to be hurt but after that he's he's pretty much broken you know he can't he can't talk straight he can't have normal human interactions and his whole family just doesn't talk to him anymore so it Oddly enough, the reason that he got into this, the reason at least that he told himself 
that he was doing it was to protect his family, to protect his little girl. And in doing so, he lost all of that. I do wonder how much of it was. That's just what he tells himself. He actually just liked the power, but I, there's not really any scenes to support that. Yeah. Is it, he, he described himself very frequently at the beginning as like a working stiff or like an average yeah. person, like an average Joe sort of thing. And I think like everything from his, his time in the, like in the Teamsters union to all this, like this is to him, it is kind of like a natural progression of like trying to work your way up from that. And so I do feel like a part, a big part of why people work themselves up from working class stiffs is, you know, for the, is like the stability it brings for your family and for yourself. But there's no denying that he does enjoy the respect it affords him and the kind of the changes in his life that he sees, even in the camera work you have, like whenever he's like, whenever anybody's in a courtroom or when there's a, his lawyer played by Ray Romano is like trying to get him off. You get these like big crane shots. He's sweeping in majestic crane shots as Frank is like looking at his lawyer, like get him off for this stuff. And you do feel like this kind of like moment of like, a rush of cinematic interest of kind of like, yeah, this is, this is where you want to be. This is where the, like the, the power is. You're no longer working class stiff now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to show the attraction of that lifestyle um, shown through cinema. While <laughs> I don't know, it, it makes you excited to be there with Frank, but I felt scared for him throughout um, just yep. because again, everyone who he's introduced to all these people who, the camera tells us are so powerful. <laughs> just as we said before, right under them, it just tells them how they're brutally killed. So it's <laughs> <No. laughs> like, get out, Frank. If you, if you, if you knew the things that I knew, you wouldn't want to yeah. be here. Are you not seeing this? I guess going to get <laughs> shot in two days. <laughs> get out of this. Oh, uh, and okay. So another thing that I kind of wanted to bring up during this discussion thing was yeah. once again, this tongue in cheek idea of Scorsese's crime cinematic universe. Yes. Um, because it was interesting with the Irishman is like because it actually takes place in almost the exact same timeline as Goodfellas. It starts in the 1950s and it ends in the 1990s while Goodfellas ends in the 80s, but still starts in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like co- two completely different lives, mainly because of, I think, the age of the protagonists when they're getting into organized crime. If you have in Goodfellas, we're looking at like a teenager who's brought in onto this thing because of the glitz and the glamour. And then you have he wants to in the Irish for sure. Oh yeah, and then in the Irishman you have like a forty-year-old guy who's like just kind of gets gets like brought into this thing, and is like rising up in station. But it's interesting that these two movies they feel so different in style and whatnot, but they're taking place in the exact same time. Um, and it's like in a lot of times you might actually have overlap between characters. Um, the Irishman has a scene that takes place at the Coca Cabana, is like in New York, um, where Crazy Joe insults, um, it's like uh, Russell Buffalino, and there's that yep. dead stare that is like Pesci gives Robert De Niro. That's pretty much like, you're gonna go kill that guy now. <laughs> yeah, but how do we not touch on that? There's so many parts of this movie to talk about. <laughs> We've been talking for so long, but we haven't even mentioned Joe Pesci yet, which is ridiculous because he is so good in this. He should be acting against every instinct we think he has as an actor. And yet it's so it seems so effortless, this kind of lethality he has without any of the bluster, without any of yeah. the raging voice or the manic craziness or the 
firing off. It's like all that energy and lethality has now been focused, razor thin exactly where he wants it. And it makes him feel even more dangerous than he has in any of the previous movies. I suspect that a lot of that has to do with the expanded universe we're talking about. We have experience with Joe Pesci's characters. We've seen him be that fly off the handle, dangerous kind of guy. He'll kill you with a baseball bat for talking shit. Like we, we know that he's got that in him because we've seen it happen before. And so now when we look at the more subdued performance, it's hard for us not to understand that that's just under the surface. It feels yeah. like a looming threat because we feel like we've seen this character before. And credit where credit's due, a big part of that is because Joe Pesci is a fantastic actor. He's able to use subtle facial movements and the way he speaks to, to let the audience know that, you know, when he says it is what it is, that's not just random tautology. He's, he's saying someone's going to die tonight. Like that, that has yeah. more weight, but I think Scorsese benefited a lot from having made all of these movies, obviously beyond, beyond just because it made him very good at making crime movies, but it also allowed him to, culture and mature a diverse cast which he could use for these with people understanding them um to cite yep. tarantino again he often uses the same cast members to play certain roles so that when we see them in a movie we immediately know what it's going to be about like we get their deal it really saves on intro it's very helpful and we he's used that in uh, scorsese has used that in the irishman to deepen some characters here because we feel like we've already seen facets of their personality from other movies and knowing that he can, he can play off of the audience expectation. He can play off our expectation that um, this man is going to be violent and Joe Pesci could, could kill you at the drop of the hat. Also all yeah. of the main characters have acted as main characters in crime movies before. So they get yeah. how to talk. They have done their previous research. They're recognizable as being in those role, perhaps with the single exception of Ray Romano. <laughs> that was what I was thinking too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but he is supposed but he works, to be though. the man apart. He, he's supposed to be the lawyer of the bunch, right? He's yeah. separated from that life, even if he does lead you to it. But uh, many of the, the subsidiary act, the smaller actors here, um, took part in boardwalk empire tv series mm -hmm. so they're familiar with that way naturally al pacino even if not having worked with scorsese before was scarface so yep that and, was uh, some exposure and the lead character in the godfather as well yes oh god of course yeah and so they're all able to draw from that i think pesci and pacino both get like they were the two that were nominated for oscars um but it's like definitively like Robert De Niro's movie. Um, it was his project. He brought it to Martin Scorsese. He wanted to play like play this role, and he does like an amazing job. It's like yeah. mostly in his face, um, and it's so different from even his past. Like we talked about, like the change with Pesci. It's like, but even from De Niro, like he's kind of had this almost like like slow progression. If you look back on Mean Streets, like he was playing a Joe Pesci character, like a yeah. loose cannon, crazy gun going up. It's like, and then he slowly kind of matured into the elder statesman role 
that we saw in as like um goodfellas and in uh, casino and now he's like kind of playing this middle ground where he's like he's the young he's a young guy in the in the block it's like relatively speaking yeah um but he's, he's like, but he's also like he's not crazy and off the cuff he's like he knows his place it's, like, it's a very different role for him um mm. and the only similarity he really shares with the guy from goodfellas is that they're both irish um <laughs> Which is kind of like the weird aspect of this, like of Scorsese's crime cinematic universe. It focuses heavily on the Italian mob, but then it does intersect with like the two other big white diaspora of yeah. of the U.S. The like the Irish mob is like and Irish members in the Italian mob, as well as the Jewish mob, which only briefly in this as yeah. the laundromat he was going to blow From, up was actually owned by the Jewish mob. Introduced by Angelo, I think it's good yeah. because it allows us to see a stranger in a strange land type narrative while still having that person be believably involved in it. So would the movie be entirely native Sicilians doing native Sicilian crime? They wouldn't appear as much of an outsider and they wouldn't be as relatable to the audience and you'd lose something in the storytelling. But in Robert Neer's character here being you know, Irish and an outsider, he is deferent to everybody. And, well, speaking on acting terms, he was a very generous actor in this movie. He yeah. is very understated, and despite being the main character, really, this is a movie about Jimmy Hoffa and Russell. Like, the, the narrative of the movie and the themes of the movie are all related to Robert De Niro, but the, plot the people who are driven driving by the plot, yes, exactly. The people who are driving the plot are the other two. Um, mm. Despite maybe not appearing on screen as much, I, I got to think, <laughs> I got to think Al Pacino has a few more words than Robert De Niro, just <laughs> script-wise. Yeah, and also, like, I've, I've never heard a human being say the word solidarity, like, the way Pacino does in that speech. And every time, it just yeah. sounds weirder than the time he said it before. It's like, it's a, it feels so personal. It feels like such a, a cool thing. But yeah, so many words, so many words. He's getting some serious Mussolini vibes from that speech. I can see that, Yeah. <laughs> Something to be said for the cult of personality that surrounds Jimmy Hoffa and how he used that for for personal gain so heavily. Interesting to think, I was just thinking about this, that Hoffa is also an outsider, not only because he's not actually in the mob, but he's also not Italian. He is yeah. things, but like one of them is Irish. And is like so you have that moment in prison where he says, You people Yeah. Perhaps that is another hold that he has on Frank. I was of like something of like more similar ground um, that they that they share. Like the, even with the who said it, Tony, which Tony? They're, they're all named. with another name, but it's Tony. Now oh, even that was funny. Yeah, whispers, but not that whispers. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I think sort of underscored some of the lack of uniqueness between the characters, but. Uh, not as relevant. I, I do want to quickly say, which I completely, completely forgot about before, which is we didn't, oh God, we didn't talk at all about Tony Pro's character. So Tony Pro's character yeah. has got to be based on um, earlier characters done by Joe Pesci, right? That character that sounds right. 
is is so so similar to the character he plays in Goodfellas and maybe to a lesser degree Casino, um, just as a little well short guy who flies off the handle. Um, you know, if, if if I if someone had to cast this movie with this people, I think a lot of people would have expected to that to be played by Joe Pesci. However, he, uh, he's got experience. Oh, what the the name of the actor who plays him? I can't say. I can't recall now. Uh, St- Stephen, Stephen. I'm not sure. Anyways, um, he played Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire and had a very similar type of character, which was you know, prone to caloric bits of violence. And I think it's interesting that in seeing all of these cast members, we can go back through their film history and see that they've often drawn from each other's roles, but also have had the opportunity to play a similar role to this in the past. All of this is to say that I think that Scorsese did excellent research when he cast this film. I felt that everyone was playing a role which they were very prepared to play. Yeah. Well, something that he even said about the de-aging aspect, right? Which is when they, people said like, oh, you're going to get like other actors, like younger actors, you know, to play the younger versions of Pesci and De Niro and whatnot. And he said like, no, I don't want to do that because then I'd have to explain to them how this works. It's like, I don't have to explain to these guys how to play as like gangsters. They've, they've done it enough times. They've lived it enough. It's like um, some of them have even it's like kind of like semi lived in it's like adjacent lives to this stuff. Like, yeah, it's like, and you, so you kind of, you kind of get that feeling like the de-aging thing was really like a necessity for him because he wasn't willing to have to bring another like a group of actors through the same gauntlet that all these other people had in the amount of time he had it just wasn't possible you can't replace that amount of experience that de niro pesci pacino and so forth have well what would you rather have a lab full of undergrads or a lab full of postdocs um finance wise (laughs) (laughs) yeah i I imagine this was a beast to finance yeah Uh, you all won't work for free eh? (laughs) i oh man i do also want to talk about some of the commonalities between these characters i know there's so many of them and there's so much to go over but i think it's important to mention that jimmy hoffa lives his life in a similar to manner to Frank in that he lives it by simple principles. So, you know, well, we wear a suit to a a meeting. You are never more than 10 minutes late. And it's shown to kind of sewer Frank that he follows these values so strictly because that's what leads him down this dark path. But of note also, the only time in his whole life, Frank waits for someone longer than 10 minutes they shoot him in the face. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> he should have stuck to his role. <laughs> yeah. There, there's something to be said, I think, for Al Pacino's strict adherence to his morals is what got him in that predicament in the first place. And then in breaking them, he's he's already damned. So I think, I, I think his stubbornness having led him to a place where he was going to be killed meant that even if he reformed, it was too late. So even yeah. though he abandoned his, his strict rules later, it didn't matter. 
And I think I mentioned it now because it ties into some of the earlier themes about uh, damning yourself in that way. These adherence to a strict code to do amoral things can lead you in a position where you can't pull yourself back out. And at that point, Jimmy Hoffa couldn't pull himself back out. You know, there's two killers waiting for him in a car with his son. It's not like he's got a range of options there. The, the only scene in the movie that my partner is like, um, watched was the scene where after they picked in the car to go take him to his final, like a resting place effectively. And they have the long conversation about the fish. Oh, the fish. The Wait, what kind of fish you, was that? What do you make of that? It was like, I enjoy it. But it's one of those things that I'm like, is there a greater meaning here? Or is it just kind of funny that these people are like talking about something so inane and useless while they're planning to like murder this person? Well, I thought that that was kind of indicative of Jimmy Hoppe's character from earlier, where he always wants to give people advice, tell them how to live their life, tell him what he thinks is the right thing to do. So we see that yeah. in the courtroom scene when he's talking to his son. You, know, you, uh, you charge a gun. a gun with a knife, you run. And he you explains it. And that explanation takes like three minutes. So the actual process yeah. of a guy coming and trying to shoot him, is like not even the bulk of time for that scene. The actual, <laughs> what you might consider to be the interesting part of it, doesn't matter. But the thing is, the might. <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Hoffa's character always has to have the spotlight. So even though someone just tried to shoot him, well, it's time for me to give a monologue, right? It's time for me to make this more about me. I can impart wisdom upon you. And that's what he wants to do. And so we now see the difference that Frank and Jimmy have here, where Frankie, Frank gets Frankie. Frank gets into a car, finds out there's fish there. It's like, oh, whatever. Like, I'll, I don't care. I'll sit yeah. on it. I'm just supposed to be here. Jimmy comes into a car, finds out there's fish. It's like, well, now I got to go on this long spiel about how you pack a fish. You got to pack it tight. You got to pack it real Never tight. Put a yeah, that, I mean, the initial part of that with um, the guy who also gets killed with the big glasses. Anyways. Sally Bugs. Yes, Sally Bugs. Um, that part was hilarious. I found that genuinely very, very funny. And you know, funny because it broke tension. Like, we're sitting there, we know what's going to happen, and I think that as part of a storytelling device, that was the the downtick, the calm before the storm. It got the audience ready for something intense by showing them something relaxed. It showed them... It, it juxtaposed a very intense scene with a very normal scene. I know I've spoken at length earlier about how this movie allowed the audience to just see these characters live their life. And what is more, what is more lifelike than a petty discussion about someone entirely unrelated to the context of three people going somewhere? Before I watched this movie, I had already seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which for those who haven't seen that movie is a movie based on history that actively decides to subvert it at the end in favor of a more like fantastical, um, more fantastical read similar to Inglorious Bastards. And so there was like a moment of me while I was watching this, Frank just kind of like sneaks Jimmy out the back and like, he's actually like living secretly somewhere. <laughs> but 
after he like got into the house because then immediately just shot in the back of the head. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that makes sense. <sighs> so are there any other things you'd like to bring up in the discussion before we head on and conclude this? I better not. I better not because <laughs> otherwise this may take too... I, I don't want to turn off your potential viewers and or make your editing work much harder than it needs to be. Not my editing work. The editing of Felicity Janes, our beloved editor. Well, if you want to keep her as an editor, maybe we should. <laughs> maybe we should move on. It's, yes, that's good calls. All right, so we're going to move on to the conclusion. To kind of finish this off, what w- what would be a a final plea to, to the folks out there? Maybe someone, one of those weird people who, as we talked sure. about. Something that maybe they're still wondering, am I going to actually dedicate three and a half hours of my life to this convince them that this is worth their while? If you can listen to this podcast to this point, you can watch this movie. Uh, <laughs> 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 I oh ser- uh, seriously though, it it goes by like a good book. You'll not realize where the time has gone. It's super engaging, it's enthralling. You'll enjoy every second of it. And when the movie finally finishes, you'll wonder where three and a half hours actually went. Yeah, I completely agree. Having watched Goodfellas and Casino quite recently, um, The Irishman, like when I watched it this time around, felt like a, a natural completion of this kind of this journey, this arc of the American gangster that we had heard of. It's almost one of those pieces that like it feels like after this is made, I don't know what any further gangster movies will have to say about this. Yeah. Um, it's like it's kind of like I as like I now think that we have the the total as a combined works of what it what it meant to be an American gangster. Um if we were to do the old ad is like the the kind of style of providing a positive control for like a success and a negative control for a failure when it comes to a movie about gangsters that's like that kind of takes a look at the lifestyle these like the peaks underneath the curtain of the world and then also happens to star De Niro and Pesci and music uh, be directed by Martin Scorsese a very specific criteria but surprisingly <laughs> well, that's one the that we beauty of the science do. yeah exactly one that we do actually have pretty good positive and negative controls for so for me goodfellas would be the positive control it would be the it's like it, it was just it's like when i watched the movie i was kind of like oh okay like i see what everyone's about with this and it's like um and then i watched casino and i think you're right that it is the movie would have done much better with a little bit of distance from goodfellas yeah Afterwards, there were scenes to me that stuck out as good, but the, the the majority of it just kind of felt like a lesser version of something quite good. Um, then The Irishman for me, actually, I think now having watched, I like it better than Goodfellas. I think it's it's a much more mature, much more refined look. Um, that embeds itself in its time and place and forces you to kind of like track american history alongside this person and alongside the mob and i do feel like in that way it's more definitive of a look at the american gangster than almost anything that's come before it and um so for those like who made it through this podcast but aren't sure if they can make it through the movie for some reason (laughs) just know that 
it's like if you watch this movie, there's a good chance that you might not have to watch any other gangster movies for the rest of your life. <laughs> I, I could believe that. In in this three and a half hours, you may have saved yourself many more just because it, it's hard it's hard for me not to think this is the the Magnus Opum of, of Scorsese crime movies and given what Scorsese is to crime movies, that makes me think that this is this is the all right, and so to finish this off, we'll give it a final rating for The Irishman. So once the positive control for it was to be Goodfellas at 100%, and negative control was going to be Casino at 0%, I would give The Irishman a strong 110%, higher than positive. Wow. That is, that is amazing. That's a, a huge increase. I liked it also better than both of those movies, but... To just compare it in the abstract, I think that this needs a just classic rating out of 10, but I really couldn't put myself to putting it at a perfect score, and a 9 out of 10 felt somehow not right either. Like, I feel that there are parts of this movie that could have challenged me more, but I also recognize that it catered to every single thing that I liked about movies. And so from a personal perspective, I liked it so much more. So I'm going to use the spinal tap rating system and rate this out of 11. And I'm going to have to give it a solid nine. Excellent movie would actually watch it. It's not going to change your life or give you any huge epiphanies, but in the moment, you'll love it, and you'll very much enjoy talking to your friends about it for six hours. <laughs> yeah, thereabouts, for sure. <laughs> okay, well, with that, that'll bring episode two of the Arts Union Science podcast to a close. We'll be sending this off to the journal, hoping that it'll get positive reviews. Oh, um, no. If you as a... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know, right? It's like, now it's the actual, it's like the waiting. Getting it's flashbacks. The <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming on and being very generous with your time. As like, um, we started recording this at around 7.30 p.m. It is currently 11 p.m. I don't know how much of that's going to make it into the final product. All of it, right? But... Un uncut, unedited. It's just... I think with all of the technical issues and whatnot, yep. it'll all remain <laughs> in its pristine <laughs> well it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me uh always good to talk to you as well uh there's very few people i can get into this much of a deep dive with movies about so ends episode two of the arts union science podcast a big thanks to brett kinrad for our impending theme song whenever it'll show up and to our fabulous editor felicity janes if you would like to provide a review of our submission, feel free to email us at artsunionscience at gmail.com, all one word with no caps. You can tell us if you accept our findings, reject them with revisions, or outright reject them. We in academia are used to rejection and won't take it personally. Thanks for listening, and make sure to join us again in two weeks' time for another submission to the Arts Union Science Journal. Your session with the Arts Union Science Journal has expired. Please try again later.